Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Original music and hosted by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2020. Alright Lone Star Gunners, welcome to the podcast. This is Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights. And I am your humble host as always, Derek Wills. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Uh, We have a very special guest with us tonight. He's been on the show before, but it's been uh, almost two years to the day. Uh, And this is my good friend, Scott Goodnight. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Scott before I bring him on. Uh, Scott is an author, a filmmaker, an adventurer, storyteller. He is the founder of Club Fitness. Uh, he is former U.S. Army Airborne Ranger, and he is a trainer and coach for corporate executives and business leaders from coast to coast in leadership strategy, crisis management, and um, as well as sales and negotiation. Uh, for the past four years, Scott has been working on a special project called The Fearless Documentary and his new book that accompanies the film uh, called The Power of Fear. Uh, it is a study of the, psychological, uh, of the psychology of the most fearless men and women around the world. He has interviewed and observed and spent hundreds of hours filming over a hundred of the world's most amazing, talented, and knowledgeable experts on fear, including world-class skydivers and base jumpers, U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, shark divers who swim, with, swim in open water uh, with sharks, venomous snake handlers for and venom, venom extractors, firewalkers, firemen, law enforcement officers, alligator wrestlers, wild animal trainers, world-famous bull riders, bullfighters, high-rise construction and steel workers in New York City, hang gliders and experimental aircraft pilots, spear fishermen, big wave surfers, rock climbers, and near-death survivors, and heroes of all shapes and sizes. Not only has Scott studied these people and their methods firsthand, he has participated in many of their ultra-hazardous activities with them, risking his life uh, in order to get an authentic, unfiltered look into their amazing world of mental and emotional control. Uh, Scott is really a, uh, a wonderful addition, a wonderful human being, and he is absolutely... Um, he is, I don't know how else to describe him, but just amazing. And so, Scott, if you could unmute your microphone, say hello to everybody. Uh, thank you for coming in this evening and joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Derek. It's always good to talk with you. And uh, I hope our conversation tonight is as good as the pre-conversation. It was so good. We said uh, we should have recorded the one we had uh, yesterday, right? Yeah, it's it's always amazing how that uh, how that happens, guys. By the way, if you wherever you're watching from, chime on in comments where you're watching from. If you want, if you have questions along the way, feel free to put them into the comments section, and I'll pass those along to Scott, and we'll try and get these answered uh, for you. Uh, Tom Thomas actually has a very interesting comment. He says, "Fear is natural. Learning to co- overcome it is the issue." Scott, what is your take on that statement, like right out of the gate? Well, um, language and communication is certainly, as human beings, that's the key 
between uh, difference between us and animals. So uh, words are super important. And I would say I, I totally agree with that statement and maybe just tweaking it a little bit. I don't know if fear is something that we can ever overcome or conquer, but we can certainly learn to use it to our benefit. And we can learn when it's being used against us, such as we're seeing right now in society by the media, by governments, by corporations. And that's what I'm interested in. And that's why I call uh, this the subject of this book and the title of the book is The Power of Fear, How to Turn Your Worst Enemy into Your Greatest Ally. Because fear can either shut you down or it can wake you up. It's the greatest motivational tool on earth, but it's also can put you in a mental prison that's just as real as if the bars were there. But the key to remember is you hold the key. You put yourself in the prison, so you have the power to let yourself out as well. And I'm just interested in how people do that and how those techniques work and if they're translatable to other human beings, which they are. So hopefully we can get into talking to some of some about some of that tonight. But I know uh, I'm I'm sure your your listeners are going to be really interested to key in on on what we're talking about here that's going on in society. So uh, yeah. yes, I, I would agree with that statement. Absolutely, just maybe tweak it just a little bit. Not anything to be overcome, but something to be used some as a tool. Just like nuclear energy, it's it can be a, a really really powerful tool. Enough plutonium that can go on your pinky running your fingernail there is equivalent to the same amount of energy that's in a barrel of oil, but you can also create a nuclear explosion that can level a city. So it's all in how you use it. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and we really have had a lot of really good conversations over the past couple of days with current events. And I want to get to that. Uh, but before uh, we do, I do want to ask you about uh, the Fearless documentary and and your book and how all this is coming um, and even getting in even I, I'm just curious what got you motivated into into, I guess, launching this project and uh, where you stand with it at the moment. Certainly. Well, um, fear has always been something that's fascinated me all the way back in, in my early 20s, going all the way back to uh, to my childhood. You know, I was born right there uh, where you live, Derek, in, in Fort Worth, just a couple miles down the road. And uh, the first experience I had in life was being abandoned by my natural parents. I was given up for adoption. I actually lived, I think, for about six months in an orphanage. I have no memory of that. Then I was adopted and, and uh, raised by good people there in Texas. And but, uh, you know, no matter how good they treated me and no matter how many times they told me, you're just as much a part of our family as the biological children, I never, ever felt like I belonged. Uh, I never felt good enough. Uh, I had terrible self-esteem growing up. And that kind of self-consciousness just translates into kind of drawing back with everything and that's how fear works. Fear is like a virus. Fear is a virus. That's the real virus that's going around society right now. And we're going to get into talking about that. But fear infects every system. In other words, it doesn't uh, compartmentalize. Uh, there's a saying in, in exercise. I used to be a physical trainer that there's no such thing as spot reduction. In other words, you cannot do uh, abdominal exercises alone and just work on your waist. If you work on your whole body, what improves one part of your body improves your whole body. Well, it works the same way with fear. 
One single fear in one area of your life can infect every area of your life. So that feeling of not belonging and and that low self-esteem that I had caused me to have every kind of fear imaginable. I was antisocial. I was afraid of dogs. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of traveling, getting outside of my little small town. Uh, One time we went to Six Flags when I was maybe 15 years old with a good friend of mine. And we kind of worked up through the little kiddie rides. And then we finally got, and it was Six Flags over Texas. They still have this roller coaster there today. The one with the two big steel loops. Yeah, the the shockwave. The shockwave, (laughs) right. I mean, see, when you're 15 and you've got a a fear of heights, the shockwave, even that name was terrifying. And uh, so we got there, we stood in front of this roller coaster and I'm just watching it climb up and hearing that clickety clack of the, of the gears pulling the, the cars up there and seeing it kind of spin around and then plunge down. I mean, it, I almost fainted. It was terrifying. And I, and I said, uh, you know, I don't feel so well. You know, I think maybe it was something I ate and my friend kind of looked at me funny. He didn't say anything. He didn't try to peer pressure me, but on the ride home, I remember feeling this horrible, horrible feeling of shame. And it just caused me to isolate and even more. And that's what fear does. Uh, we think that we're building this castle of protection and we build it brick by brick. But then one day you look around and you're in a prison. Uh, your castle that you built to protect you, your ego, suddenly turns into this, this place that you can't get out of. So for me, luckily, I stumbled into the, I wouldn't even eat lunch in, in the school lunchroom. So I would go to the library, take my sack lunch. And they, it was there, I started reading books, uh, actual biographies and adventure stories. And I remember one specific book. It was called Voyage of the Contiki by Thor Heyerdahl. And it's about this man. Uh, he was Nordic. He was a real Viking. And he and his uh, Viking friends were scientists. And they wanted to prove that they could sail from the west coast of South America down someplace in the Polynesia, like 5,000 miles. I think they actually went like 10,000 miles on a balsa wood raft. They almost drowned. Uh, terrible storms, sharks, ran out of water, all this kind of stuff. But they made it. But the real impressive thing about Thor's story, what stuck in my mind and started me on this path, was he almost drowned two times when he was a kid. So he had a terrible fear of water. So the real adventure, in my mind, and the real story there was Thor himself. He had faced his greatest fear, and he became world famous. I mean, they're still making movies about him to this day. Very inspirational story, but it's a very inspirational idea. And I have a firm belief that the only thing that's stopping you, me, anybody from living the life of our dreams and doing unimaginable things is fear. And I also have a secondary belief that that really ties into that one. And it's this, your greatest fears are the exact keys. It's like the combination lock on a safe. And if you go after your greatest fears, you will unlock that safe and that's you. You're the safe. And inside yourself, there's all these resources, all these amazing passions, talents, dreams that you can unleash and grow and share with the world and transform your life. But everybody does everything they can to try to avoid facing their fears. So I, I got that message in my head and, and I started down this path and I dropped out of college my first year because it just wasn't interesting. And I took Thor's challenge. Let's just call it that. Now it's got a great be- name. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's his real name too, you know? So, um, 
I went down to the recruiter and I said, I want the hardest, what is it? I mean, the most difficult training there is. Navy SEALs, Special Forces, bomb disposal. And he said, well, those are all very difficult. And for sure, those are great choices. But if you want the one that has the most attrition, the least chance of making it, it's the Rangers. It's the Airborne Rangers. You have to go through Airborne School, basic AIT, then Airborne School, then this thing called RIP which is two or three weeks of just utter hell and where they try to weed out anybody that doesn't really want to go there. Then you go to a ranger battalion and then you're there from anywhere for a year or maybe 18 months, maybe even two years before you go to ranger school, which is the pinnacle. It's the most difficult leadership school in all the military branches. They send Navy SEALs to ranger school. They send special forces to ranger school. They send uh, Marine force recon they send other countries, special forces leaders and officers to ranger school. The attrition rate is horrible. You're going to face all of your greatest fears, snakes, alligators, starvation, heat exhaustion, hypothermia. I mean, I truly thought we were going to die in, in the mountains of hypothermia at one point. My hands were totally numb for days. I couldn't even hold my rifle. I kind of had to like cradle it like this. And I had like severe damage to my nerves that lasted for years after that and my metabolism. So I got through it. I made it somehow. And this gave me a new identity. It gave me a new story. See, up until then, I had really kind of lived as a victim in my mind, which we see in society a lot these days. People have taken on this attitude of poor me, and we need to make the world nicer and softer, and we need to have safe spaces and stop saying these mean words. Well, you can never stop that. We're never going to stop that. The key is not to make the world adapt to you. It's to make you adapt to the world. You've got to get stronger. So part of Ranger School is they give you this tab. I hope you can see this. This is my Ranger tab. I carry it with me in my wallet all the time to remind myself that I made it through the toughest school on planet Earth. And each one of these letters for the word ranger, it spells out an acronym and becomes a creed. And you can look up on the internet. I won't bore you with the whole thing now, but it's called the Ranger Creed. And each sentence and each paragraph states certain beliefs and values and standards that you are agreeing to uphold as a ranger, that as you wear this tab and as you carry the title of ranger for the rest of your life. I mean, even if even if you did something horrible in the military and uh, they took your rank away from you, let's say, they can never take your ranger tab away. And I always thought that was interesting. It doesn't matter if you're an officer or enlisted. It is a universal sign of ultimate respect in the military. So that was a transformative moment in my life. And I've carried that with me for years and through many different businesses, many difficulties in life. Uh, many different uh, business ideas that I've had. But around the age of 39, I started kind of having that midlife crisis and just bored with what I was doing. I was publishing bike, biker magazines, basically books in the in the motorcycle industry and maps. My maps were in every motorcycle magazine on the planet, Hot Bike, Thunder Press, uh, Easy Riders, Street Chopper, I mean, on and on. They all used my maps because they were so cool and they were useful. And, and I'm a big believer in maps. Maps are a form of communication in the brain in which we can store large amounts of information and recall it quickly when we need it. I learned that in the Rangers 
And uh, so I was enjoying that, but I was just kind of burnt out. And so I decided to just stop all of a sudden and just quit the whole deal. And, you know, I was making a lot of money at the time too, but it just wasn't satisfying to me. And I took some time to meditate on my life and I started reading books. I sold my motorcycles, bought a mountain bike, started exercising, stopped drinking alcohol, stopped smoking, and really got into this, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I've played around. I've done a lot of things that I wanted to do, but what am I going to do to really make my mark in this world or just to serve the world to the to best of my abilities with my talents? And I asked myself a question. What was the common thing that allowed me to succeed where other people had failed? And I thought, you know, well, it's not intelligence because I'm definitely not the smartest guy in the class. I didn't get that good grades. It's not upbringing. I grew up in a very uh, lower end of a middle class uh, kind of environment. Uh, Didn't go to college, didn't finish college. I finished one year. It wasn't um, natural talent at anything, really. I wasn't really naturally talented at anything. It wasn't connections. We didn't have any family connections. It was this one thing. It was this idea that I had picked up from Thor and a lot of the other books that I read that Basically, it's like what Aristotle said. I love this quote. He said, you will never do anything in this world without courage. It is the greatest quality of the mind next to honor. So that's very important that he said that too. And the ancient Stoics believed in four basic principles and courage was the first one. And that's really interesting. If you think about, you think about Stoicism, you think about these Greek intellectual philosophers But they valued courage more than anything. And in ancient Rome, all of the senators, all of the statesmen, everyone who ascended to the ultimate levels of power in Rome had to have first proved themselves in battle. And this has gone on for a long time, but it's only recently in history that we're kind of losing this and we're seeing the consequences of it, I believe. So it was then that I decided I was going to make my life about teaching people about fear and I started doing different things in, in Georgia. The first thing I said is I need something to sh- give people an experience that they won't forget. So I looked around. I'm like, what can we do? Break some boards, snakes. That's all fine and good. Uh, can I take everybody skydiving? No, it's too complicated. And I came across this guy who was doing fire walking. So you actually build a bed of coals. You let it burn down a little bit. It's like a thick bed of hot coals, 1,200 degrees. You take off your shoes, you take off your socks, you get yourself in the right state of mind, and you walk barefoot across about a 10-foot bed of coals. You're getting a good four steps in there. And this man taught me how to do this over the phone. His name is Tolly Burkan, and I finally just met him uh, in the fall of 2018 when I was out in California. Stephanie pointed out to me, he's like, he lives right over here, just right north, or right south of uh, San Francisco. We were in Yosemite. So I called him up and he he couldn't believe it. We hadn't talked in 10 years and we actually went to his house. So I got to meet my, my mentor, so to say. But I was doing this for several years and I was teaching courses and everything that I could get my hands on out of psychology books and, and everything that I had learned in the military and then put together some courses and was getting good results, but it just wasn't growing very much. So I, I knew I needed to do something huge. And I knew I needed to write a book and to write a book, what am I going to do? Just copy what other people have in their books? No, I need original, fresh information. 
So Stephanie and I decided to sell everything that we didn't need or have, put it in storage, packed up everything in Atlanta, Georgia, and went on the road out seeking interviews from anybody who did anything you know, extremely unique. The first interview that we had was Carl Beck, Master Sergeant Carl Beck. He jumped into D-Day, and he died a couple years ago, unfortunately. He was an old man, but uh, he gave us our first interview. Then we went up to New York City. We went to 9-11. We went to the memorials. We started talking to people there about their experiences. Then the high-rise steel workers. Then the guys who hang off of the buildings and wash windows hundreds of feet up in the air. Then we went down to South Florida, started finding people who bred venomous snakes. I'm talking 12-foot-long king cobras and yeah. handled them with their bare hands. I and by the I've way, seen the videos on YouTube, man. That's um, It's really impressive, everything that those guys were doing. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, we didn't even know. I, I didn't know that there were people that did this kind of stuff. So then yeah. that was the shark divers. And when you think of shark diving, you think of guys like in a cage – Right. Whenever you think of people diving with sharks, not anymore. These, <laughs> these people get in the water and swim around in their bathing suits with sharks. And, you know, I went to interview these people and I had this camera on a big, long pole, went uh, down to the Home Depot and bought this long, like extendable pole, you know, the kind of the aluminum. And I put a GoPro on the end of it. And they were kind of looking at me funny. And we finally got out there about six miles off of the, the coast of uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. And they were getting in the water and I started getting the camera out and guys in the water, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to film you. I'm going to stick the camera down there and film you swimming with the sharks. We could already see fins coming up and everything. He's like, get in. <laughs> and I said, this is absolutely insane. And then this girl got in with no fear. And I was like, okay, call me chauvinistic or whatever. But like, if this girl can do it, I can do it. So that's I got mis- that's total misogyny, man. That total, is, you you are yeah. totally a sexist for that. Mansplaining, right? <laughs> but seriously, total respect to the ladies who are doing this fearlessly. Yeah. And I got in and it was absolutely blew my mind. You're literally entering another world, first of all. Gravity goes away. You can't breathe. You have to hold your breath and then stick your head underwater. You can dive down a little bit or have the snorkel on. You don't have scuba gear. You're doing what's called free diving. Yeah. And these sharks come up to you like dogs at a dog park and you can pet them. You can kind of grab onto a fin and go for a little ride. They do not want to eat you. And it took doing this several times. And I've actually been shark diving seven or eight times now and watching myself on video. And then after about two years, So we first started doing this almost four years ago, and that's how long we've been working on this project. It took that long for it to really get past all the programming in my mind that we got unconsciously from the movie Jaws. Right. That single movie. And did you know the author of the book, he was so upset by the phenomenon and and the fear that it created He spent the rest of his life, not Steven Spielberg, the movie maker that popularized the book, but the actual author. He spent the rest of his life and all of his money trying to promote shark conservation and educate people as to why sharks are so important to the ecology of the ocean. They keep the ocean strong like the wolves keep the caribou herd strong. So 
everything has its place. And so we started learning all these lessons and, you know, like from the, the snake. Hey, hey Scott. Snake yes. Hey, Scott. I'm sorry to cut you off, man. I could honestly listen to you talk for hours, but I'd like to kind of move on to what we're, you know, the, the, the topic yeah, of yeah. the day, if that's okay. Yeah. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, <laughs> you, you did. Uh, just to, just to kind of say hi to people. Uh, we got, uh, John from New Hampshire, Hampshire, uh, Anthony in South Louisiana, uh, Patrick in Southwest, uh, Southeast Iowa, Tammy in Houston, uh, Randy in Tennessee, Susan in Harper, Texas. Thank you all so much for, for tuning in. Uh, please share this, uh, you know, uh, to as many groups as you can, uh, because this is, this is all important. Um, and John says that he's been sh- diving with sharks once awesome creatures. So, uh, yeah. if you and guys, by the way, like you said, those videos are up. We can, I guess we can share the link where people can go. And there's tons of videos with all kinds of crazy stuff that we filmed. Yeah. Uh, I did put uh, the link to your documentary website in the show notes. So go guys, go check that out. I'm sure you can find everything there. There's pictures galore for sure. Um, But I brought you on today because fear is what is ultimately driving the phenomenon that we're witnessing before our very eyes. This is a change of the of not just the political makeup but there's a change of the very culture across the world because of this COVID-19 virus just I'm going to ask you directly is this a rational fear absolutely not i mean the the you know we've been having conversations for 2 years now you and i And the main part of our conversation was how statistically insane it is uh, for legislators and and different special interest groups to go after uh, semi-automatic rifles specifically, because statistically, there's less than 400 long rifle deaths a year. You've got a better chance of getting struck by lightning than shot with a long rifle. Um, If I mean, for the past like couple of weeks, you and I have been sharing numbers back and forth and nothing has really changed. I think right now, uh, as a worldwide threat, the, the threat of you dying from this virus is probably, I think it's like six thousandths of a percent. I mean, it's not even registrable almost. Yeah, the, the and, statistics that they're presenting are in X per million of the population. And they're That's, lying. The, the, all the time they'll say, oh, so-and-so died uh, of the COVID virus in, or coronavirus. And you read down in the article, one woman specifically who died uh, that was 54 years old four or five days ago, she's been battling cancer for 20 years and she was in relapse. I mean, she was in full blown like since February, but they blamed it on the, on the uh, COVID virus, on the coronavirus. If you dig deeper, you'll find that everybody, almost everyone that's dying of this is either obese they have diabetes, they have high blood pressure, they have hypertension, uh, they're fighting some other form of de- disease, or they're very old. And that's it. I mean, this even right now, before we got on, I looked up worldwide flu deaths. In, in any given year, 250,000 to 500,000 people die of the flu every single year. I think we're at how many deaths right now worldwide? Uh, worldwide, let me look this up really quickly. 
Uh, right now, worldwide, we have 74,675 people dead. And we're uh, shutting the world down. Yeah. Just, you know, and they have all their, their reasons. But every time they say something, every time, you know, Governor Como or someone comes on and, and whips up a bunch of drama and fear, then we find out, oh, well, there are a bunch of ventilators in a stockpile. I mean, they're just they're lying to us flat out. Yeah. And and fear and and the big thing that people aren't seeing is what's going into these stimulus bills. They are right. putting in um corporate diversity rules. So now corporations are going to have to have a diverse, you know, sexually, racially. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Pay equity. If you're a white male, you are now going to be at a legal disadvantage. Other people are going to get a kick up in pay if this stuff goes through. But hopefully it won't. Hopefully enough people are going to learn about this. It's going to be like Obamacare, which they put into law, but it's just, you know, nothing really happened of it. Why I I see this thing as an attack uh, on society and the Western world and freedom and democracy in general, I'll give you a real simple example. When 9-11 happened, um, there were several things that happened. First of all, we became afraid of terrorists. And we started stereotyping and generalizing a certain type of a person, which we should not do, Mm -hmm. uh, that looks in a certain way, which, you know, we shouldn't do this. But they painted this picture, this enemy that we all mutually hate. And this is what partially justified starting this war that we've been in for the past almost 20 years now. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. We've been at war for for 19 years. There are people – that are going to fight who weren't born when this happened. When it happened, I thought they were going to recall me. I'm like, that's it. Yeah, I was about to publish my first book. And uh, I said, this thing's not going to be, I had it done, actually. It was about to go to the printer. And I said, that's it. They're going to call me back in. I'm going to war. And But it didn't happen. And But here's what did happen. Thousands, tens of thousands of people that otherwise flew all around. That's how they they were uh, they transported themselves to and from work, to and from business, for leisure. They started driving. Now, did you know that flying airplanes is the statistically it's the safest way that you can travel? Yeah. There are so many regulations. There's so many. The chances of you dying in an aircraft in in a commercial aircraft are almost zero. But the chances of you dying in a car accident, I mean, I think that's one of the – it's heart disease, cancer, and then accidents, just general accidents. Those are the top three causes of death in the United States. And car wrecks fall under that category. So what happened, they did this study, and what they found is that more people died because they chose to start driving cars again in about a two-year period – then died in all of the attacks on September 11th. In other words, both buildings, both planes, the Pentagon and the one that went down in the field, add all those people together, a few thousand people, but the people that drove the car accidents, and these were like scientists from another country that studied this, more people died from driving than in the terrorist attacks. So I ask you, what really killed them? But fear. It It was their fear, yeah. Now, uh, what's killing people with the COVID virus, and, and the other thing that I didn't mention, the people that are dying from this coronavirus 
It's because their immune system is weakened. It's exactly like AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. Nobody dies of AIDS. They usually die of pneumonia or the flu or some other thing. The very fact that they are putting this much fear into people is weakening people's immune systems. I I mean, we will look back on this and scientists will do studies and we'll be able to talk about this in the future. I mean, more people may be dying of stress than they are from uh, the actual COVID virus, like on 9-11. But certainly people's dreams are dying, their hope is dying, and freedom is dying, and our rights are dying. And they're saying temporarily all this stuff, well, we'll see. Uh, The government has never relinquished power that it's taken. (laughs) Um, You know, it's... I mean, following 9-11, we had the Patriot Act, we had the institution of the... Have they taken the Patriot Act back now? No, they've renewed it consistently. Uh, You had uh, the implementation of the uh, Transportation Security Administration, who has like an 80 to 90% failure rate at, quote unquote, keeping us safe. Um, Oh, yeah, they've done all these studies with the TSA. I mean, it's like 60% failure. They've they've Oh, it's higher than that. It's higher than that. I, I think the most recent one was a reporter asked, if 80% was close and uh, the head of the TSA said that's in the ballpark. So just so that your listeners understand what we're talking about here is they've sent undercover testing agents through TSA to see if they could sneak a device through uh, a knife, razor blade, you know, potential something that could be like a bomb or something. And their failure rate, I thought it was like 60. I read, but it's horrendous. Yeah. So, but what they did just try to do that got pushed back by the, uh, I don't know, the ACLU or someone pushed back on this one. They ha- were this close to facial recognition of, for all uh, people flying on airplanes. Wow. Yeah. And now they're using facial recognition in Moscow to implement social distancing uh, regulations. And if you are too close to someone in Moscow right now, they use the facial recognition and AI, and you get a fine in the mail. That's crazy. I mean, no humans involved. Yeah, uh, I saw a post just earlier this evening, like maybe an hour or so ago. Uh, I can't really substantiate it, but all I can all I can do is take it at face value. But it was a picture of a New York City cop talking to a couple that was sitting together in, in on a bench, uh, and the caption basically said that this officer said that they need to to increase their differences from each other. And the woman said, we're married. We live together. And the cop basically said, I don't care either separate or I'm going to issue you a citation. It's like this, this is, this is crazy in Rhode Island. We got the, the uh, national guard going door to door looking for people from New York. Uh, We're having mandatory quarantines coming in. And you know, there are people cheering for things like this. Yeah, there we got are, Bill Gates talking about uh, digital certificates to prove that you've been tested or prove that you've been vaccinated. Man, this is what's really – it's, you know, that kind of stuff right there, I, we're not going for that. Yeah. That's, that's the government getting control of our bodies, and we just can't have that. Well, the thing is, they already do. I mean, and here, here's what's here's what's absolutely nuts, and, and uh, Thomas makes a, a – a good point uh, from earlier talking about cars. He said at one point in our history, more Americans died on our roads than the total that died in Vietnam. 
uh, and that was the catalyst to push for safer roads and cars. And, oh, yeah. More people die from alcohol and, yeah. and drugs and malpractice every year. And, and that's another crazy thing. So they're defining essential businesses in California. Liquor stores are essential. Pot stores are essential. Abortion clinics are open. Those are essential businesses, but gun stores, no. Yeah. So that, that's just nuts. And, and absolute insanity. And the thing is, you you brought up how uh, you brought up uh, Bill Bill Gates, but it's not just people of the left that are cheering this sort of s- nonsense. You have people that proclaim to be constitutional conservatives, small government people, that are cheering this sort of thing. Uh, and you know, I want to share this with you. Um, it's something that I posted up on Facebook uh, earlier today, this afternoon, and I want your thoughts on it because it kind of ties in exactly with what we're talking about i go i i I said this what is the role of government it is simply to protect individual liberty nothing more so is it the role of government to act in order to stop the spread of a disease not at all how is a disease controlled disease is controlled by medication isolation proper hygiene and time no matter how serious deadly or contagious for government to take these actions violates the one fundamental principle for which they are supposed to exist. It is the role of private individuals who freely choose to participate, uh, to practice medicine, doctors, nurses, practitioners, etc., to stop the spread of a disease, and they have always been successful in doing so by merely recommending those actions to the infected individual, who then freely chooses to follow that advice. To say that the government's role is to stop the spread of disease means that you must believe yourself to be nothing more than a slave to the government, as they have the ability to dictate to you when you can and cannot travel outside, what actions you can and cannot take, what you must and must not put into your body, what property you can and cannot own, how you can and cannot utilize that property, and should you refuse, your life could be determined to be invalid entirely. If you do not have the ultimate say in the aforementioned, then you do not own yourself. The government does, and that makes you a slave. A slave is nothing more than a person without any ownership of their own lives and bodies. To support the government's mandates over oneself is to support the institution of slavery, where the governed is owned by the government. And to acknowledge that is an entity to acknowledge that an entity that cares nothing for you as a specific individual somehow knows better than you do as to what is in your best interests. And I close by saying this, collectivism is a virus far more deadly than anything this planet has ever seen. It was collectivism that ensured the eradication of 242 million people globally just in the last century. And it has and that's just the major atrocities we know about. This does not include a cop killing an, uh, a clap in America killing an unarmed individual while enforcing a status law simply designed to extort money from the population simply because the cop, quote, felt threatened. Collectivism is by far the leading cause of death in the world and has been since the dawn of time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, what comes up for me is I think about 1984 and George Orwell, and I think about what was the the science fiction movie back in the in the 80s. It was them or they or something like that, and uh, where the people 
are already starting to police other people. The gym, I'm in Key Largo right now, and we belong to a gym just a couple miles down the road, which is closed now. <clears throat> and uh, I've made friends there. And one of my friends told me that some woman came up to him <clears throat> and was like, you know, pointing to the to the machine that she wasn't even going to use that he was just using about wiping it down because we have a strict uh, rule about wiping the the equipment down there after you use it at the gym. But he was still using it. And this woman was trying to tell him, well, you know, because of the virus, you need to really wipe that down. And he's like, I'm still using the machine. Um, this self-policing thing, it's, it's everybody thinks that it's their job in society right now to tell everybody else what to do. We've got all these, these uh, virtue signaling social justice warriors who are living in their parents' basements. They've got $100,000 college debt. They're brainwashed by their leftist progressive professors and with all of this socialism garbage and they're going around trying to police everyone. And it's just, it's a perfect storm. And you know, you can, you see it in the store. It's, it's been creeping over the past week. There's a Publix down the road that we go to and it's just got progressively more and more paranoid as we as the days go on, and people are now wearing masks and gloves, and you come around a corner in the grocery store, and used to people would like run you over almost. Now people like stop and look at you like you're diseased. We're walking around the neighborhood, people just like stay away from each other. And I thought to myself, man, weren't they just having a bunch of riots in China? I mean, just like forever, like the past couple of years, it was these people want democracy. They want freedom. They want capitalism. And what a perfect way to just nip that right in the bud. And the other thing that I see is I'm like, so now it's really our First Amendment. Uh, We can't gather together and talk, which is essential. I mean, thank God. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And, you know, thank God for the Internet. Here, but what scares me about the internet and us being able to communicate freely is, and I'm thank God I'm off of Facebook now. I can't I can't stand it anymore. But uh, uh, the immediate thing that they did on Facebook and YouTube is they told their their uh, moderators to go home as soon as this thing, the big outbreak, and they turned on their AI, their automatic automatic uh, moderating software, to start searching for things that went against their community standards, which is such a giant generalization, and uh, and fake news. So again, it's like hate speech. Who gets to define what hate speech is? They're creeping in on our First Amendment, and they're also, I mean, we see them trying to attack the Second Amendment by making uh, businesses, by gun stores being non-essential businesses, or actually, you know, some pol- politicians have had the audacity to, like try to use this as an opportunity to to push even more for gun legislation. I think in, in Pennsylvania, this is the biggest power grab that we've seen since the New Deal and FDR. Uh, the everything that happened after nine eleven, there was some big stuff that happened in two thousand eight. There was big stuff that happened. They're trying to reorganize society now. You know things like the border. We've been arguing about this border for the past almost four years now. We're not going to have that argument anymore. 
There's going to be a, there's going to be a fence, and people are going to argue about that. And I mean, have, have you heard anything in weeks? I haven't. But here's the thing: I always tell people about fences. They work both ways. They keep people out, but they also keep people in. So there's a lot of red flags I'm seeing right now. Well, when we were up in uh, in the Pacific, not in the Pacific Northwest, we were in on the east side. We're up near Boston and in that area uh, two years ago, and we were doing some interviews. I went to the you know where the Boston Tea Party was held and and uh, just trying to get some you know went to Independence Hall, went to Philadelphia, and all that kind of stuff to get down into the roots of where our country was founded. Of course, really. Our country started in New York. A lot of people don't realize this. New York City would have been our capital if it wouldn't have been for Thomas Jefferson and insisting that we put it down in the swamps down there in Washington, D.C., where at the time when the spring came around, it it became so mosquito infested that he figured all the politicians would leave so they wouldn't be able to be there year round and and be creating laws. And I think that was very wise of him. But um Anyways, we were we were up there. Hey, uh, Scott, real quick. Uh, I wanted to apologize. I accidentally muted my mic on the last question. So I just wanted to ask it again for you guys. Uh, What I'd ask Scott was, why is this why is this fear affecting our psyche the way that it is to the degree that it is? So sorry to cut you off, Scott. I just wanted to no, no backfill Um, people. Yeah. So let me just get right to the point. Um, somebody told us, hey, you know, Salem, Massachusetts is just right up the road, like 30 minutes north of Boston. And I'm like, Salem, Massachusetts, the witch trials, 1693. And so we shot up there, and there's a place that I highly recommend anybody, if you're ever in Boston or around Salem, take a little short drive up to Salem. It's a beautiful little town and uh, New England town. But they have this place called the Salem Witch Museum. And it's in this old Gothic-looking church. And the whole place is dedicated to telling the story of what happened there in Salem. And and so basically, just to make a long story short, they were having a really long, hard winter. People were starving. And they were indoors. They were crammed together. And there was this black Jamaican maid named Tibitha. And she she practiced voodoo. She had all the weird words and the the language and cast the spells. And the little girls that were stuck indoors because of the bad weather, well, they were bored. They couldn't get outside and play. So they started mimicking Tibetho's and her language. And it frightened people. It frightened their parents. And when they saw – this is the story that was told to me. When they saw – these girls saw that they could get that attention and create that power by making their parents afraid, it became a game. And then they started saying this person's possessed and that person's possessed. And they think there might have been something in the bread. Also, there's a, a strange uh, a germ in the, in the rye bread that almost acts like the uh, hallucinogenic LSD, which causes hallucinations. So they speculate there might have been some of that going on. But basically, what did happen is they were under stress. And this was what they called the trigger point that set in motion the witch trial. So they started, when when people are under stress, they start looking for somebody to blame. And generally, we don't look in the mirror. And this is how it started. And they started accusing people of practicing witchcraft. 
and they started having trials and they started hanging people and family members turned in family members and brothers turned in sisters and sisters turned in brothers and wives turned in husbands and all in all they i don't know how many people they hung but they didn't even give them a christian burial they rolled them down the hill and we went looking for graves and they said you're not going to find any you're going to find one and her name was rebecca nurse we actually went to her grave which you can go visit as well and it was just so creepy man and but what we see happening in society this has been happening for thousands of years the term scapegoating is actually an old biblical term and what would happen in a village they would start stressing out people did bad things to each other they lied they cheated they stole they did all the things that neighbors do to each other no matter what the 10 commandments say we still do these things today and it creates this stress so somebody figured out the idea of making a sacrifice using a goat they would lead the goat through the town and people would cast their sins upon the goat throw cabbage and old rotten carrots or whatever at it and they'd take the goat outside of town and sacrifice them this was called scapegoating and then everybody would have this cathartic release of their guilt of their resentment and they'd kind of get to start over fresh again and then it would happen again and it would build up all over again this happened in germany I mean, the reparations that were put upon Germany after World War I were unbearable. The German people could not recover. And so they started, you know, Hitler started making a scapegoat out of the Jews. And once this starts into motion, um, it's almost impossible to stop. So we see this in society right now between the have-nots and the haves, the, the millennials. They've really been sold out. They've got huge college debts and they can't get jobs. They're intelligent, so they're organizing into all these different groups. But you have to have what's called the drama triangle. You have to have a perpetrator, you have to have a victim, and you have to have a hero to have this whole thing work here. So that's what's happening. So how does that relate to the virus? Well, what they're making, you've heard Trump say it again and again, we now have an invisible enemy I watched Whoa. it. I mean, he was just literally reading it off the screen there. Somebody wrote it for him because I don't think he really understands this stuff. He's a real estate guy. He said over and over again, we have an invisible enemy. I always thought that the only way that we're going to get all human beings together on this planet is if we have an alien threat. Then we're all going to have to pull together, and it won't matter what color your skin is, it won't matter what religion, and probably pretty much if, if we have a an alien religion, uh, alien attack, all religion is going to be thrown out the window anyways, uh, because that's going to supersede all those beliefs. But to the point, we have to have an enemy to fight as human beings. It's usually tribe upon tribe. This enemy is, I've, I've seen them trying to use the global warming and the climate change as the enemy to get everybody together fighting this new battle because a war, there's no more profitable the way, way to make money than war to yeah. get people mobilized. So, you know, the the American Health Care Act, Obamacare didn't work. This global warming thing's not working. We can't keep doing this terrorist thing anymore. The world's getting too small. We, we know each other too well. What better thing to have than an invisible enemy? I mean, it's wow. just – it's just uh, – so then if you go back and think about the scapegoating, think about the stress that we're under, 
And you think about what was in that Green New Deal, the universal basic income. Well, here it comes. Everybody's going to get direct deposits in their bank account. And how, how creepy is that? You know, it's like we already know your bank account info. What they're doing. I mean, and if you read the bills and the stuff that we've been talking about, I mean, it's just it's an absolute attack on democracy, on the Western world, on America. And, you know, it just makes me wonder, you know, if there is something as sinister as as a man-made part of this thing. I mean, who's behind it? And so there is something that is. Um, and Jeff says in, in the comments, he says the witch huts might start again if if you cough in public. And he's absolutely right. You know, that, absolutely, they are. You yeah. see people. There's a woman that uh, went around a store coughing. It cost like uh, thirty five thousand dollars in, in spoilage. Yeah. They find her big time, I think, you know, and they put it all over the news. Yeah, there's, there's an example right there. Yeah, well, that's. But that's actually like a malicious act, whereas, you know, I think what what Jeff is talking about is uh, people you're just being out in public and then your allergies come and tickle your throat. And so you cough and then everybody's like, Corona, get him. Right. And but to be clear, the woman who coughed in the grocery store is no different than those little girls in Salem, Massachusetts, who were acting. They were crawling around and acting animalistic and repeating the the spells that Tibetha had been repeating they were getting a rise out of this. They were getting attention. Yeah. Getting power. Attention is power. So the woman in the grocery store was behaving just like the little girls. And do you think that's why? I mean, I, I saw this great meme that makes a lot of sense. It basically said if if you're reporting people for being out in public, you would have turned in uh, Anne Frank and uh, uh, Harriet Tubman. And it's absolutely right. Uh, but do you think that that's why people do it? Do they, is it more out of fear or is it more out of, they want the power to be able to. It's, it's a sense of gaining power for sure. Uh, And power. And that's why I call the book again, it's the power of fear. People know deep down that you can, and scientifically what happens whenever you go into fear, you leave the cerebral cortex and you go into a deep part of the brain called the amygdala where, your gut brain resides. So whenever you say you have a gut feeling, it's not really in your gut. This is an ancient part of our brain that gathers all this information over a whole lifetime. And it makes instantaneous decisions faster than our conscious mind can think that are meant to just simply keep us surviving. So it's a safety and security mechanism. It's like fight or flight type stuff. Yeah, it's the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's not the part of your brain that that reasons. It's not the part of your brain. That part of the brain works very slowly. It's the newest, it's the newer part of the brain, and it allows us to communicate like we are right now and have language and art and music and all these wonderful things. But it it does not when you're about to be in a car accident, your amygdala and these other parts of your brain activate, and that's what causes you to survive. So we we know that we can get a reaction out of people like this. All of Steven Spielberg's movies, the common theme, really, it's this hero story, but it's fear. It's this fear of the unknown, whether it's Jaws or it's uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind or the Nazis and Indiana Jones and and Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's always this evil force, and there's always a hero. So people want to be, they want to be the hero. They want to get a sense of power. And they get a lot of that on social media by virtue signaling 
and agreeing with the status quo and fighting with each other. And and so I really think that that's what's driving this and what always drives it. And also, people want to belong to a tribe. This is probably one of the most powerful motivators that I see working right now is we're fighting to define what this tribe called America is, who we are, what our values are, what our beliefs are. They're very much under threat and uh, because these people can't get any power. The new generation is really powerless. They can't get jobs. Uh, I mean, I've, I've met people with master's degree, master's degree serving coffee at Starbucks or, or waiting tables because there's no job in the field that they studied. It's really sad. And uh, we should do something about it, I guess. But I don't I don't know what to do on a societal basis. All I know is what you can do on an individual basis. And that's right. kind of my whole philosophy. Right, right, right. Um, so I want to I want to start kind of wrapping things up a little bit. I mean, we could seriously talk about this for hours, but right. Um, yeah, we've already been on for almost an hour. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I guess my my I guess one of my last questions is. What do we do? I mean, actually, before before I get into that, I want to bring up something that you and I spoke about off the air, uh, and that was the study that you were telling me about where uh, they asked people who supported gun control, um, it, what was it, if we could provide proof that your beliefs are wrong, would you change your mind? What, what was that again? Yeah, I'm trying to find, I mean, yeah, we could talk for another hour, there's so much, but... Just to paraphrase, there was a, a book that I was reading, and uh, the guy who wrote it was a pretty liberal thinker, I think. But the study that they did was rating risk. So they asked uh, a wide variety of Americans, and they took great care to make sure that they were representing all of America uh, from high to low, left to right, up, down, back, forward, all financial strata and all that good stuff. And they asked them about the risks that they felt, terrorism, cars, planes, disease, guns was one of the things that they talked about. And this one was the one that was really interesting because what they found is they asked the question that they asked is even if you were presented proof and evidence that there is no threat here, that it's completely constructed by the media, would you still maintain your your stance, your anti-gun stance. Every one of them did. And that's that was really I, I think mean, that right there is so quintessential to understanding the phenomenon that we're witnessing right now. Because I've I've literally had a conversation with somebody today about the riskiness of this virus. And I presented them with facts and figures, and he said it doesn't matter effectively. He wrote it off because he's like, you know, we've had 6,600 people die, um, therefore – This is like like a religion. That's how I see this. Right. Uh, Global warming, it's the same thing. Climate change, that's a religion for people that don't believe in God. Statism Um, is really what it is. Exactly. Statism, but – for anybody who doesn't understand, the state becomes God. Yeah. And so that's what's happening. <clears throat> and a new tribe is forming. They want to form a new tribe. And they, you know, it's like there's that long quote in 1984 about power and what they intend to do. And 
they're they have no intent of fighting fair. They don't they think they're above that. They think the means justifies the ends. And um it's it's really scary how these people think. It's very cultish. So I, I guess my final question then how do we as individuals, because I'm not about collectivism, as I said earlier, because collectivism is dangerous. But how do we as individuals, how do we treat the virus of collectivism? Well, that's real simple, that question, but it's it's kind of a it's a process of self-realization and self-discovery. And because we we have two eyes pointing out. And we're looking around the world all the time for threats. You know, biologically, this is how we're designed. And our ears are picking up information. And we're forming these pictures in our mind that have to do with the outside world. You only look in the mirror for just a couple seconds or maybe a couple minutes a day. If you're a lady putting on makeup, you're probably getting to look in the, the mirror a little bit longer. If you shave every day, you're looking in the mirror. But you're not really looking inside and asking yourself what you're really afraid of. <clears throat> and so I think it 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 comes down to again going back to the ancient Greek Stoics. I've I found a lot of wisdom in in this group specifically, and it all comes down to one thing: self responsibility. <clears throat> what they're trying to convince everybody of is that it's the government's responsibility to take care of everything. And I think all the listeners here of Lone Star Gun Rights understand we're all in agreement. It's not the government's responsibility, but how do you stay sane in this insanity? Well, one of the things that I've discovered is you've the social media is just a toxic mess. I don't know how you stay on it as much as you do. Honestly, I, I honestly, I honestly hate myself. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely. I can't. And the news, I mean, it's lies. It's obviously, I agree with you. It's it's a mess. And you start reading the comments. It's all like, propaganda. People are, they're, yeah, but these people are in our country that want these things. I can't believe it. And so I just had to get totally off and start working on what I can control in my life. So here's, here's what I ask you and everybody that's listening. If you really want to change the world, and you go around trying to create legislation through consensus and lawmaking. When does that ever really work? Whenever you put rules on people? Never. It doesn't. But when you decide to make a change, and just to give some simple examples, if you decide to get on an exercise program, or you decide to read for an hour a day, or you decide to do any kind of self-improvement, or create a garden, or, or work on your uh, your skills with your guns, anything, take up any kind of a course, you've improved yourself. You are one of 8 billion people. And so if you technically, if you improve yourself, you're improving the world. And this is how children learn how to walk. They don't learn from a book. They don't learn by laws. They don't learn by legislation and rules. They watch. And there's a part of every human being that's still very much like a little child we follow. And so to be a real leader and to really create real change in this world, the thing that you have to do is change you. You have to improve yourself. You have to stand up and stop being a consumer and start being a creator. And that's what I love so much about you. When I first heard you speak in Austin at the Second Amendment's rally, I said, I want to talk to that guy because he's so passionate and so well-versed and so well-spoken and so together. Everybody else was in like in military uniforms 
you were dressed nice. You had a nice polo shirt on. And that's the image that we've got to put out there if we're going to change anybody's minds with logic. And I've watched you debate when we were at the NRA convention. Again, I, I went there and, and watched you. And I, the girls they that were in your face, I mean, they wanted to fight. They <laughs> wanted to just tell you they were ganging up on you. You just stayed calm. You kept your hands up here visible, like, you know, just like the police do, if you ever notice that. Yeah. And you were carrying. You had a pistol. You had a forty-five on your hip, cocked and locked. And, you know, you kept your voice toned down. You kept your facial expression calm. And you didn't return that angry energy. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, they calmed down. And then I saw you matching their body language, matching their voice tone. And pretty soon, you had implanted some ideas in their head, at least to think about. Yeah. But whenever you come at people like this, you're not going to change the world. We're just polarizing. We're creating more enemies with our own country. So I just, again, I wanted to make sure and, and tell everybody how much I honor you for the work that you're doing and that Justin's doing and people like CJ and other people that I met there in Texas. Um, it's just so important. Stop being a follower, being a, be a leader. Don't be a, a consumer, be a creator, take responsibility for your life, get off of social media, stop looking at all this garbage news, start reading books, start learning and start prepping. I mean, if anything, yes. You know, we're looking at the government talking about how unprepared they are. Look in the mirror. Are you prepared to last yeah. six months or a year possibly? Now is your wake-up call because it's not if, it's when the big one comes in our lifetime. And I don't mean to scare anybody, uh, but that's the power of fear. Fear can wake you up or it can shut you down. So take this as your wake-up call. We're going to get through this. We're going to get back to business, but things are going to change here. And and not for on the side of freedom and democracy. It's going to become a little bit more uh, rules oriented, and people are going to want it. But just remember, you don't have any control over that. The thing you do have control over is you, and that the example that you can set. That is what a true leader is, and that's how you change the world. So that's what I would say about that's my definition of being fearless too. That's that's really amazing. John says, preach it, brother. And John also said, uh, relating to your comment on, you know, how often you look in the mirror and how rarely you ever actually look in the mirror. He says, that's a great way to loop back to fear. I have uh, believed for a long time that most people have no greater fear than the fear of self-examination. I, I, I think self-honesty and self-examination, self-accountability. Yeah, it's it's terrifying. But it's yeah. also the second you do it, it's like the second you jump out of an airplane. I mean, the whole ride up is terrifying. You feel like you're going to throw up and you get to the door and you're just tense. But as soon as you go out the door, it, all the fear is gone. It's an amazing experience. It's the same with shark diving. It's the same with walking on a hotbed of coals. Anything I've ever done, the fear is in the mind. It's beforehand. As soon as you take action, the fear disappears. Totally That's agree. That's uh, that's amazing, man. Uh, I really enjoy having you on the show. I, I enjoyed. I am so blessed to be able to call you my friend. I am so thankful that you approached me uh, in Austin that one day two years ago. Um, because honestly, man, you have become you've become such a good friend. And what well, you were talking about prepping. 
It really is. This is this is a great way to illustrate your your point of taking control of your fear, not overcoming it, but taking control of it. Because if you prep, when the time comes that you need to use those preparations, you're no longer afraid. You're not afraid of the impending chaos because you're prepared for it. And you've got an edge psychologically because when these other people are in panic, they're not using their cerebral cortex. They're not using logic, and you will be able to. And you need to mentally rehearse these ser- scenarios, yeah. not only with yourself, but with your family, too. Because <clears throat> imagine going down a car. You got, you got down the road in a car. You've got four wheels. That represents your family. If air goes out of one of those tires, the whole car is stopping. Yeah. So you don't just need to strengthen yourself and prepare yourself. <clears throat> Everyone needs to be prepared. So it's it's a full time job, you know. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Scott, do you have anything else that you want to say before we part ways this evening? Um, people can go to uh, just type in my name in Google, Scott Goodnight. Don't forget the K in my last name, G O O D K and I G H T. You can go to my website. There's a contact there, or you can go to clubfearless.us. That's our little club that we founded. You've got to do thirteen test to get in the club if you make it in the club you get one of these little coins on the back there it says remember everyone dies but not everybody truly lives so you earn that just like you earn a ranger tab you earn that coin you earn the patch by facing your greatest fears i hope you join Uh, you might have already got 13 just go take the test see where you're at you might be surprised you might be more fearless than you are and but look at it just like you go to the gym to maintain your physical health and your physical health helps your mental health and it just spreads all over your life. You need to be consistently pushing back on your comfort zone. Whatever you're doing, you need to get outside of your comfort zone. Just like you go to the gym to build your muscles, you need to go build your courage and because we are going to need every bit of courage that we can, uh, not only in our own personal lives, our own communities, but in this country. Courage is the antidote to fear, and courage spreads too, and people can see it in you. And so if you want to learn more about how you can improve and grow your courage and strengthen yourself, go to clubfearless.us. And if you have any questions, there's a contact uh, page there or on my website for the Fearless documentary. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. Awesome. Well, Scott, thanks again, man. Um, I got my, my music coming in. Uh, So it is time to wrap things up. Scott, thank you so much for your time this evening. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for what you do. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Uh, You have an open invitation anytime you want to come back. So uh, anyway, guys, that's going to do it for me this evening. Uh, I hope that you found this informative, and I hope that you share this with somebody that you love. Uh, And until next week, Lone Star Gunners, arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo. Take care, guys.